Okay, so my name's Rowan Reed, and uh, I'm a forester. So I cut things down. And uh, I prefer to see myself as a forest scientist. In the same view, there's a difference between fishermen and marine scientists. as to a distinction we've lost in Australia. Uh, think of uh, in, as someone who's actually studied, the, studied forestry for 30 or 40 years and, and worked through that period of time. Like David uh, over here, I, I, I don't know what you'd done before you wrote your first permaculture book, but I, wrote, I hadn't planted it. I had planted a few trees before I wrote my first agroforestry book back in 80, 1985. But uh, like David, I had to go and do it myself to, to really learn, as most of us do through that process. Um, how will I go defending native forestry in Australia? Probably not really well. What about plantation forestry, big monocultures, industrial development? Clearly there's a lot of rejection of what forestry in Australia represents and what it actually does. I'm concerned that in discarding or rejecting those practices, majority of the people are also losing access to the science. And I use the quote from uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance when he's talking about technology. There's nothing inherent. The ugliness in forestry is not inherent. It's actually, if it was, Gardening itself would be ugly. It's the same science we use in gardening that we use in forestry. And in exploring that science, I'm really interested in creating landscapes that are based on the same science, but are dealing with forestry as a solution rather than a threat, as it's perceived by most, particularly in the agricultural landscape. So I see myself as a forester working amongst farmers. This is Andrew Stewart. His property was mentioned. He's an ag scientist. And together we've worked together for over 30 years with the farming community across Australia exploring ways that trees and forestry can be a solution or fit into their farming landscapes. And I've concentrated in the agricultural landscape because despite all the concerns that the forest blockades and the, and the, the perceived threat of, of forestry, the major environmental threat in our landscape has occurred already in the agricultural landscape. It's where all our biodiversity climbs, why all our weeds have come into the landscape. It's where the herbicides are being used at a scale that uh, Charles was referring to. And it's where the greatest opportunity lies for forestry to actually be a regenerative process, which is what we're talking about. My family history in farming goes back to a property up at Walgett, uh, where this photo brings tears to my eyes because it represents Christmas dinner with my mum getting drunk on red wine and my uncle getting drunk on whiskey, arguing about the future management of their property, which they both inherited from their father, who died when my mum was only three or four years old. My uncle wanted to clear the country and do cropping, and my mum was arguing for maintenance of the native vegetation, which we'd made money out of for 150 years, grazing that landscape grazing and making a perennial landscape profitable. It wasn't perfect, but it was far more sustainable than the landscape there. And if you look at this landscape, it has what we were talking about this morning, about those perennial components in it that were providing fodder for sheep, uh, the tree component which were providing stability in the landscape so it could survive the floods and droughts and carry on over that period of time. Uh, I apparently have a great uncle, Peters, that goes back to the 1850s, which was attributed to being the first farmer who identified the, the value of grazing on saltbush during a disease that they had up in New South Wales in 1852 and uh, went out and selected this saltbush country at the time. But I grew up at the coast, 
So I wasn't about to move to Walgett and take over a farm in a, in a very low rainfall. And I grew up walking and living in this forest. And I guess where this, is, this forest is really important to me because it represents understanding what forest science is about and learning to read the forest and start appreciating that the forests are actually as fluid as the ocean in the way that they change. We have a mentality in Australia which is very strong about let's stop, let's not touch our forests, let nature take its course, let's lock it up and protect it from humans. I see an enormous opportunity to enhance this forest with human activity, to actually make it better for biodiversity, better for water. I can also see the damage that's been done in the past through selective logging, which is more destructive than clear felling, and understanding why that these, some of these outcomes could occur. So I bought this property in 1987 with the expressed purpose of trying to make a forestry attractive to the farming community, or even more particular, make the act of cutting a tree down for profit an attractive thing for the farming community, because the obvious outcome of that is that they'll plant more. Not only cut, they've got nothing else to cut down, so they're not about to destroy what they've got left in that sense. Just to prove I had hair one day, we lost a house in Ash Wednesday down the coast, so when I built a house three or four years later, it was a concrete bunker with a, and as a response. And I, I say this because it's, our past history has a great bearing on the, the actions that we take as we go forward. And we all have a different history, so all our acts are going to be a little bit different. I actually shun away from trends and fashions in building and other things because I think we're losing access to expressing our own personal aspirations and also embedding in our personal history, our family history, our farming history, whatever it is coming through in some way. So I used a lot of native timbers because I was a forester and we love Australian native timbers. I didn't want Pinus radiata to be used through that. So red iron bark that we now grow for, for timber and uh, this is some of our homegrown red iron bark but back then we were we're desapping. I put this in for your, this audience particularly because I go to a lot of owner-built houses and I'm surprised that they don't understand you've got to take the sapwood off. This is a lictus-susceptible species. Lictus is a, a beetle that gets into the access as the sapwood, the part of the tree where water travels up the stem to find the starch. This is not durable, this part of the tree. The heartwood is durable. So it gets in there and it's eating out that sapwood in that area. I treat some of my species, but I won't talk about that. But it doesn't have the colour at all in that process. So that's a 20-year-old red ironbark from our place with a bit of lictus damage in it. So we, we took, the took the sapwood off by hand. Another species, blackwood. Everyone knows this is a valuable native timber. Grows from Athen Tablelands right down to Tasmania across to South Australia. A beautiful timber, also lictus susceptible, but you don't want the sapwood because it's not black and has a beautiful timber in it associated with that. The question is, can you actually grow that dark coloured? What is the science of heartwood formation? This is what we need to understand. What creates the colour? Is it genetic? What creates some of the, the characteristics? And when foresters challenged me one day on the farm and said, uh, oh, you'll never grow the heartwood, it takes 13 years before it transitions to heartwood. You can see the growth rings in the native trees. I just picked up the chainsaw and cut down one of my four and a half year old trees. It has sapwood formation. I knew from the science that heartwood formation has nothing to do with growth rate. It has nothing to do with how old the tree is. In fact, a tree doesn't know how old it is. And I'm going to use these points of science to illustrate that you can use science to understand how you actually grow your trees and forests better 
for whatever purpose you want. I'm not telling you why or how or what species you should grow, just some of those opportunities. So this is our house, our, our, our fire bunker, which um, unfortunately doesn't meet the current bowel fire rules because <laughs> they don't, they, concrete roofs don't fit into that, that scenario. So I've got to, got to do some other work to, to bring it up to scratch. So we took this landscape and the story about the house is applying now to the landscape. What am I going to do? with my family history, with my passion for trees, with my desire to use special native timbers particularly, how would I plant this creek? Would I get a land care grant and just fence it out, let nature take its course, take the money, plant the local indigenous trees? This is what most people do with their creeks. That's a dead end route to me. I actually don't like land care grants. They actually suppress innovation and expression. Everyone ends up with the same thing and there's not engagement in the forests. So I planted out the creek. We used a lot of native species, understory blackwood you can see coming up there, but I managed the trees for timber production. I was always going to cut the trees down that I was planting for conservation. I don't see a conflict between the two. Grazing has been used across our farm for the same reasons we discussed earlier, particularly for fire protection in our landscape and weed control. But the creek I did fence out, but most of the other plantings, I just wanted to add that tried electric rings and various other things, but I settled on this flexible tree guard because of this thing called thigmomorphogenesis that you can read about with flexible guards that actually allow me to grow a lot of species and have the occasional cow, but majority of sheep and wallabies and kangaroos in that landscape. So that's after 14 years of tree growing. No straight lines, trying to avoid monocultures. I'm trying to introduce forestry to an audience that don't like forestry. So it's got to look different but it's based on, as I said, the same science and same markets. And into land care, I want to introduce the idea that harvesting trees is actually a, a solution. Wood as a product of the farm can actually drive these regenerative processes. This table came from that creek. This sold for $3,000 in a local gallery. So there is that process of turning things around. That table I made, I'm no furniture maker, but my son's pretty proud of it it came from his farm, made by his dad. And that's really nice too. So can it all work? Can you take a degraded landscape that needs trees, grow those trees for the biodiversity, for the conservation, for the aesthetics, for the reasons you want? Can you take it right through? Can you start harvesting these trees and actually get a commercial return from that? So this is the creek in 1907. This is the same creek 22 years later where I'm selectively harvesting individual trees. And you can see the diameter of these. This is not fertiliser or water. And out. this was after 10 years of millennium drought. This is just understanding spacing and management of trees. And we'll talk about why they don't have any branches a bit later. I'm using a tractor-driven PTO logging winch to pull it over just for my own safety so I'm not driving wedges into the back of the tree. And that was a eucalyptus nitens, something I won't grow again because they don't like climate change. Uh, but this is pulling out the 22-year-old logs that came from the same creek you can see there. That's a day's work, for which I received $3,500, 22-year-old trees. And this is uh, two years later when it came back, or a year later when it came back from, from China as sliced veneer. Now, don't get into the debate about why they went to China. It was actually cheaper than sending them to Brisbane, you know, about the cartage costs. But they went in a a uh, empty container, otherwise empty container, back to China to Europeans' best 
slicing veneer plant in the world, which is in China because IKEA is in China, and they sliced it all up, brought it back to Melbourne, and ultimately now it's in the Australian tax office building in Dandenong. So when they tell me I'm not running a business, I can refer them to their walls and say, well, you bought the timber, so it must be a commercial activity. So I can walk into... I can walk into the tax office, like Arlo Guthrie, walk into the bar wherever you are, jump onto the thing. I said, that's our timber. That came from an eroded creek. It is possible. Forest industries laugh at me and say, 10 trees. That's not forestry. But it's proving all the things that they said weren't possible. They told me you couldn't grow high-quality timber in, in eucalypts in under 60 years because they were trying to protect their access to native forests. They had a motive to discourage the research and development. So we had to do it ourselves with a few other people from CSIRO. So this is the same creek as it was, just to reinforce that land cabin. This tree died in our uh, incredible heat waves that we had in 2011, but nothing's a waste if you prepare for death. So you can cut it down, mill it up, dry it. This is our solar kiln that works on high humidity processes, getting the moisture content down to 10.9%, anywhere between 8 and 12 for furniture production and then you can turn it into furniture. Again, just proving this point with species after species that you can do this within your lifetime. Forestry is not something you only plant trees for the next generation. Because if we can show that through silviculture, better management, we can turn that around. And now I'm celebrating a stump. That's a stump from the tree. Stumps are good. Stumps tell a story. They tell of change and transition. And I'm now taking all the eucalypts out of this creek and I'm infilling now with tropical and subtropical and temperate rainforest species, just as that Australian red cedar that's growing extremely well next to that stump. I can't grow another eucalypt because as foresters keep saying, you need to clear fell because you need sunlight to hit the ground to grow a eucalypt. And that bit's actually true. So I can't grow another eucalypt there because there's other eucalypts too close by and it's too shady. So planting some of these rainforest species is actually proving really good. And we don't have tip moth for all those northerners. So our red cedars at the back there grow very straight and as fast as they do in northern New South Wales. Just to prove their potential, this is a red cedar in the Albury Botanic Gardens and the largest planted tree I know about is actually in the Adelaide Botanic Gardens. So this notion of just plant what used to grow in your area is sort of breaking down for a few different reasons. Climate change is obviously one, changing the landscape, but also they're not, it could have got there eventually, just didn't quite make it. I'm not rejecting the native species. We've, we've got some beautiful native trees. Uh, I like pointing out to people that I've got aerial photographs that say this tree is less than 75 years old. It's not old growth. It's not 300 years old. And actually using mistletoe, we're getting hollow formation in about 20 years by allowing mistletoe to... You don't really allow it. It just happens. You don't take it off. <laughs> in using it as a means, particularly with the droughts associated, to create habitat elements through there. And it's got a reasonable timber as well, like messmate, which is dropping limbs there. Uh, messmate fell over that I planted. Uh, there's another load of timber. It's being used for furniture. Just reinforcing that we've actually got some really lovely timbers that you can use. I plant a lot of New South Wales species now because of their fire adaptive behaviour. And we do a lot of burning off underneath our trees for fire protection, but also, as we heard about, generate the smoke and generate and drive the regeneration of, of wattles and various other things. So change, like that red ironbark forest, dynamic systems, they do change. Where they change to, we actually become 
sort of like the conductor of an orchestra, directing our forest in different ways. You can choose not to touch it, but gee, you're missing an opportunity because when you get in there and engage with your forest, you can take it in extraordinary places. You can choose to use exotic species. You know, people have been talking about oaks, so I've used quite a few exotics because of the, some of them are deciduous, as you know. So poplars, we're finding a market for this timber. Uh, it might be an unusual one in terms of uh, using it for cheese curing and other things, but it's a reasonable furniture timber and much slower growing species. So in this system, we're actually growing the fast growing trees, the poplars, and using the black walnut as a slow growing what we'll leave behind when we cut out the poplars. Same story with my eucalypts and my red cedars in that sense. And from, four, from quite small diameter black walnut, we can get something reasonable. This timber's been used for handles in furniture making, uh, particularly once it's dried well through that process. Another one I really like is the Coast Redwood, tallest tree in the world. And uh, sometimes joke when people come and look at my Coast Redwoods, say, yeah, I've, I, I said a bit of a lie. I didn't plant everything. My grandfather planted this and stuff. And people believe that because this notion of big trees must take a long time to grow. That tree's 30 years old. It's now 85 centimetres in diameter. The, these trees are the fastest growing trees on my property, faster now than all the eucalypts. But they were the slowest for the first 10 years through that process. There again, with here again. So 14 years, they weren't uh, just getting through the pruning there. And now you can see how much they take off after they're well established. They're unusual because they've got a lignotuber. Now we know lignotubers in our, our eucalypts. These actually have a lignotuber. So the first few years, particularly in a dry environment, they just sit there and put all their energy into that big root mass underground, the big potato. And once they hit that point, they can, they can grow all year round. As soon as the temperature's right, they've actually got stored energy in that, in that system. So that's why the growth rates pick up tremendously. But my main re reason of using them is this problem. Sodic clay soils cover about 30% of the agricultural landscape in Victoria. These are soils that have very fine clays that the sodium particles break off the chlorine or other sources. From We get a lot of rain off the coast. Uh, sodium chloride, the chloride is taken away and just washes away as a innocuous iron. The sodium particles bind to the clay and this makes a very highly dispersible soil. So the subsoils actually just wash out like this in winter. The day this was occurring, I photographed that, then I walked under my redwoods. Clear water was flowing across the top. I've not found another species, exotic or native, that can grow in that sodic clay and I think change the chemistry of that soil. Because we change the chemistry in our garden by using gypsum, but we can't do that in the agricultural landscape at scale at depth. We're talking about up, holes up to eight feet deep through this landscape. And this water's running clear while under the eucalypts and, and wattles and blackwoods, it all looks like that. So other species, uh, the silky oak, one of my favourites at the moment. I, I gather silky oak logs around the city of Melbourne and take it down the farm for milling. It has this very pronounced ray cell that runs from the centre to the outside. So if you cut it on the perfectly cortisorn, you get that striking appearance across that. That's the reason they call it oak, because English oak has that characteristic as well. Now, all trees have ray cells, but only some are visible. And those that are visible can only really be expressed if you saw it the right way, which is why I've got that particular bandsaw that I use to get that perfect cut. You see me pruning the trees, just to reinforce, when you cut a branch off the tree, the knot that you leave behind stays there, and all the subsequent year's growth is over the top. 
I'm trying to manipulate the growth of the tree by actively cutting the branches off as it grows to create more of wood of higher furniture grade quality. So this is one of the acts by understanding what's happening in the forest and directing the growth in a certain way. One of the things that I've noticed with the silky oaks, they get eaten. Something's hooking into the bark there and effectively farming the tree. Those are those sugar gliders that I spoke about in the, in the managum hollows. They actually come and they chew on the bark and make the sap run. They used to use uh, black walnut, black wattle on our farm, but now they're actually preferring the silky oak. And the population of sugar gliders is maintained over winter by farming the sap that comes out of those silky oak trees. It damages the timber for a little while, but once it's developed, they'll move up the top and the bark thickens up, so I'll be able to have timber and wildlife habitat as well. She-oak had just got that oak name again to it, has the same characteristic, and you can see things like drooping shark, which have a beautiful grain. You might only need a tree 25 centimetres in diameter, and you can grow that in easily in 25 years, and has a furniture-grade timber. I'm selling some of this for guitar frets boards because it's so strong and attractive in that process. And both of those species talk about oak, and English oak has already been mentioned as part of the, the acorn collection that's going on. We use them to protect the assets, obviously, for their fire protection. And uh, I, last year, that's me in Wales looking at an oak thinning trial, you know, set up by foresters for the purpose of logging native forests, which they're not allowed to do in most of the area anymore. But a great deal of science we can learn from that site about how trees actually grow. I measured these trees, measured the distance between them, the basal areas and various things, came home and cut half my oak trees down. They were too close together. I got my head around that competition. And the reason we've been able to grow large fat trees of eucalypts and redwoods is because I understand space and competition between those species to give them space. So I encourage, I go to most farms and see if you've got too many trees. You've got to start by cutting half your trees down so you can concentrate that leaf, that solar panel that Charles was talking about, it, on the actual trees where you want the growth to occur. It's no good having lots of skinny trees unless you're in the firewood market. If you want to grow high-quality stuff, you've got to concentrate the growth. I was in this forest just the other day with someone and I can see the difference in green leaf activity and subsequent growth on the stems coming through there. Those logs aren't all wasted because we grow shiitake mushrooms on the logs. We inoculate them with, with this and, um, and there's quite a few people in this room involved in this process. Oak has proved really quite good for that process. So I did some work with my, my master's students at uni and you can see that oak performs significantly better than most of the other species in terms of its yield. And I still think it's probably just a reflection of the fact that for a long period of time, oak or oak-like trees are being used for shiitake, so they've selected strains that suit. We'll probably find strains that work very well on the eucalypts, but not to date. And uh, there's something about shiitakes that uh, fascinate me. You sit there and wait for something to happen when you dump them in water, but then suddenly this growth occurs and it just fascinates me. This is uh, over a period of four days out of an oak log. The, uh, the harvest of shiitake mushrooms that we're getting from. So whatever the products are, bush food, bush flowers, shiitake, seed production, all these things are all just those multiple layers that Charles was referring to which you can get from your forest on top of those conservation and agricultural benefits through the process. We've had about 10,000 people visit the property but the thing I stress is I don't want anyone to copy anything. 
all I want to do is say that forestry can offer much more than you've thought about before. The diversity of species, they're like uh, colours in your palette. You can paint any type of landscape you want, given the range of species. You can mix exotic with native. There's no rules about how you actually work this landscape and how you can use forestry principles and how you actually manipulate growth and prune things and space them and establishment. The Otway Agroforestry Network, I think it's the largest land care group in the country, but our local CMA is trying to call us not a land care group because we cut trees down. But we're a land care group because that's how we started as a community of farmers who are trying to look, explore those multi-purpose ways of growing trees in the landscape through that process. 15, got plenty of time. So in this group, we actually uh, got about 150 financial members now. We get uh, government funding. We've had over three million, and if anyone hears from the department, we're hoping for a few hundred thousand in this coming year uh, for our development programs. None of that goes for trees and fences on farms. We don't provide grants. Right from when we set up the group in 1993, we specifically said we are not going to ask for money for trees and fences because in doing so, someone else, someone makes a decision about where it's going to go and what species will plant it and what you're allowed to do. And funnily enough, a new law came in Victoria saying if you received any government funding for a land care planting over the last 30 years, in retrospect, you're not allowed to cut it down. That's ridiculous. You know, some farmers never signed an agreement saying they couldn't utilise those trees. But now they've been, in retrospect, been told they can't. So they were told what to plant and how to do it. If we're going to encourage innovation and integrate it and using design with the expectation that we can end up with something quite unique and exciting and we can learn from each other's experience doing that, we don't want grants. So we've spent $3 million paying ourselves. We have 25 members who act as peer mentors. And if you're a landholder in our area, we'll send out three mentors to your property. We'll run education programs. We'll bring expertise in. We'll take you out to other regions to encourage the conversation within the community with the expectation that we don't know what's going to happen in 20 years' time. But what has happened is an extraordinary degree of landscape change. Farmers are now saying, well, we want we want to explore these bush food opportunities and we want to explore flowers, so we have education, development and research projects going on in those areas. And the landscape change has been fantastic. And it's different on every property. And it's that diversity which reflects the diversity of people in our community, which I think is the key for learning and discovering, but it's also the key for maintaining farmer engagement with their trees. So they're actually actively involved and they're developing landscapes that address their problems. This is uh, in the catchment over from us with shelter belts which are, are managed for timber. Some are monocultures, some are mixed species, a whole range of different things. You've got to be careful not to just say, well, I'm seeing whether there's some pinus radiata there, or even this one. This is monoculture blue gum. And people say, well, you know, that's not good. Look at the whole of landscape. A Bird surveys done in this landscape show that there's actually 104 different species, whereas the native forest in our area only carries about 34, and the open pasture lands carry about 15. There is more diversity in this diverse landscape, even though it involves these certain monocultures and certain mixtures that, that aren't perfectly indigenous than you would even get in an indigenous landscape. And that reflects the possibilities that rather than 
going back to what it was in 1788, given the changes and the fact we're in this landscape, let's look at a type of landscape which is new and more suited to Australia in the next century. So our legacy, as we often argue, is not always the trees on your own property, it's the ones that others plant. And using our Master Tree Grower program, which has uh, been going s since uh, 1996, 110 courses around Australia involving thousands of farmers. Um, next month I'm going to Vanuatu to introduce this program as a farmer education program that just talks about this, what people want to grow trees for and the science that can help them and the market opportunities that are in their area and then let them make the decision. Too many people are telling farmers what they should do and they're often people who aren't living and working on that particular property. So thank you very much for that and we'll finish with a little fly through uh, since we can't go for a walk amongst the trees. Uh, that's the eroded creek as it was in 87. We've got regeneration coming along that creek which is quite nice. Then people go out here and say, well, where's your understory? And I said, well, this is, this is a paddock and I'm worried about fire and I'm trying to get grazing revenue out of that landscape. So you can't just look at each planting and say, it must be this. You've got to look collectively at the whole landscape. You could hear one of our members singing on there if you've got a good, good ear. So on the side here where now you can see all this debris, we're selectively logging the creek as I described with the eucalypts. I actually land whole trees in the creek and just take the saw log out and leave the rest in there. We don't have beavers in our landscape but we have chainsaws and we can use chainsaws to increase the large woody debris in our waterways which mim mimics what used to be there in the past and in process. So you can see all those eucalypts out there will go. Here's the poplar and black walnut. The poplars are now coming out for timber because they're large enough, allowing the black walnuts, which are on this side, to start developing into space. That's the thinning and managing competition around trees so you can actually get decent diameter growth through the process. Just dodge a few trees with the drone. Then we're going in and see this is the silky oaks up here and experimenting on different soil types and up into some young coast redwood that I'm pruning now. So these trees, I visit every tree every year and prune up to eight centimetres in diameter using climbing techniques to actually make sure that I'm concentrating all that growth and to produce the highest value product in that process. And that tree's almost finished. And then only on a very small property, I've got about 60 different commercial timbers that we're trying to produce with the idea that maybe, like Winnie the Pooh, the 100 acre wood can actually be a viable scale for forestry where I always get told scale in forestry requires thousands and thousands. So I travel the world and work in Pennsylvania and North America where the average clear cut is three acres and in Scotland and Wales where there's actually small native forest harvesting operations with oak and it may actually be viable for forestry to be or timber to be a commercial product off farms that are managed for a diverse range of reasons. So thank you very much for that. Um, you talked about the redwoods and uh, the potential for a change in the, in, the, in the soil structure. You mentioned the lignotuber. Do you think it could also be a mycorrhizal fungi or something else happening under, un, underground? And I wanted you also to comment on perhaps after reading The Hidden Life of Trees and that kind of stewardship that you would see between you know, your major trees in the landscape and smaller trees around and the fact that you know, that is happening less on your farm where do, you think, where do you think that stuff sits within the Australian landscape? 
Uh, Bambara, the name of our little township area, is actually the indigenous language for mushroom. Uh, we're starting at a 4% carbon in the soils, very high, and there's old coal mines in our vicinity. Uh, fungus is just a part of our landscape. It is everywhere. Everything rots. I've got red iron bark. If you leave it on the surface, I've had log, um, old telegraph poles rot. If you leave them on the surface, they're better actually in the clay deeper down. So there's a lot happening with fungus, and obviously we don't understand all of it uh, of going on. But with the redwoods, they've got an extremely fine root system. So compare them with the eucalypts and pines that have a very large root, and blackwoods one large root with small things coming off. They create this root mat which clogs up. Now, if you've got many, many fine roots, fine roots grow and then they die back, grow and die back, and you've got this pulsating occurring under the soil that's actually adding organic matter and whatever else and changing the, 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 the minerals. And I, I want to go in now, we call it phytoremediation. It's occurring under some crops in terms of sodic soils, and I've got to find out who's, who can do the science regarding what's happening there. It's just fascinating. And, uh, the Dorothy Dix that comes with The Hidden Life of Trees. God, I got angry reading that book. People believe that? <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, extraordinary. You know, trees care for each other. Gosh, they, they do a little bit, but gee, once they're competing for resources, Australian trees fight. And they fight to the death. We have some of the species, we call it the self-thinning rate in forests. And uh, so in a native eucalypt forest, after a wildfire with mountain ash, you end up with a million seedlings growing. 150 years later, you've got 150. Now, they didn't care for each other. It's a competition. And through that selection ratio, they've actually... Uh, Darwinian fight has actually supported the fastest height-growing trees because it's height and access to full sunlight, which is a different difference in eucalypts. And as a result, with there, they've got these very fast height-growing growing trees, which are okay if you can lift water, so they only grow in very wet areas. But the same is most with, with many species. Uh, I've looked at self-thinning graphs for, for everything, which is why I was in those forests of oaks, because they don't care for each other either. And the other thing, on page three of that book, there was this, uh, this thing about this. Uh, he shows his students this, um, this living oak stump. You know, it's been there for hundreds of years and it's been nurtured by the trees around it. And he's got this statement in there, it would never happen if you planted a tree because a planted tree is uh, disturbed for life and will never behave like a native tree. I put the book down, ran down into the paddock and in that creek I've got eucalypt stumps that are still alive. They've just root grafted to the one next to it and the one next to it is they're basically leeching off the living tree, taking nutrients away. There could be a bit of a kickback because they've added some root area to that system and accessing some other soils. Um, but there's some really good science in forestry. You've got to be really careful about when people are writing to use a little bit of science to argue a particular point. Now he didn't like monocultures or something like that so he said about having an agenda for a particular outcome. Don't be too judgmental about what people are doing. Look for the science underpinning that. Yes. Two books that was given to me recently from a colleague was uh, Tree Crops, published 1950, and Tree Farming. You've known them. Have they been useful? Those two books, Tree Crops and uh, Forest Farming. Yes, I, I remember reading both of them. I know which house I was living in Fitzroy when I read Forest Farming for two days and stuff like that. And uh, they're all important in, in people's thinking about the, the, the multi-purpose nature of trees. Uh, 
and it may just sit there and concentrate on that, then look out at the landscape and, and say what we're not doing. And even the agenda within the landscape that wasn't looking at that. And this notion that this separation between production and conservation in, in forestry was so pronounced, but in agriculture, you had to put the two together. And everyone saw the profit was an integral part of having a sustainable system, which is love the regenerative agriculture field. Why don't we have this regenerative forestry field that's just as big, where forestry is seen as a solution? I blame my own profession. We've done some huge disasters, the forestry walls, clearing the native forest in Tasmania to plant eucalypt plantations. I was, just to reassure you, I was on a bus with a group of foresters from the mainland in Tasmania. We were taken to one of those sites where they cleared native forest and planted shining gum plantations for pulpwood, and everyone was horrified. Okay, it's, we have a diversity of opinions within our profession as well, and they all saw ways that this was going to actually make forestry worse in Australia. And then we had the MIS schemes. Now, I was actually told to shut up because our students were getting jobs. And I was saying, well, it's all going to fall in a heap because it's not going to work. And I measured the forest and there was no way that they were going to meet their prospectus life. So there is some forestry out there which is promising and, op and you should be interested in as well. Thanks for your talk. Um, right, with the design, I, I was up at Crystal Waters doing my study back in 91, so it's a while ago and I haven't actually been back. So, But with the design of Crystal Waters, it was a former farmer giving land back to um, people for the permaculture to, to develop the whole residential estate. And there's probably people here who could elaborate on that who are from Crystal Waters. But they'd put uh, agroforestry as sort of like a, a little niche in some part and around was going to be the residential, but a big part of it was the wildlife corridors through the planning. And I'm just curious, I mean, there's got a conflict between conservationists and farmers, and I was just wondering, on your property, did you have like wildlife corridors, um, particularly allowing sort of native animals to pass through? Because um, that's a big part. And also just with um, designer agroforestry, the way they've got it, is actually changing the pH of the soil at all? Um, because I know with Pinus radiata, and it's a bad, <laughs> to be sort of planning, um, but the change of the pH over the long term will actually make the soil sort of dropping down. It's very acidic and then virtually useless over the long term. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, just we'll put the. <laughs> it's always hard, isn't it? Because you know I've, I've been to places where they've cleared the old pine plantation they grew on the Bracken Hill, and after the clearing, it produced the best pasture than in the whole site because you've actually had that turnover in organic matter. The acid layer is, is that, that white layer under, when you pull the, the needles back, you have this little humus layer that's got this white fungus growing in there and that's quite acidic there. But down in the soil, it depends on the inherent soil characteristics that organic matter acts as a buffer. There's, there's a lot in that, but it, uh, there's many reasons why things don't grow under trees and, uh, and it's probably just the needles and that acid layer just in the in the, in the breaking down needles. The other thing about agroforestry, having worked in it for 35 years, I get very frustrated when people see agroforestry as an off-the-shelf design that I'm going to copy the black walnuts and pasture from Missouri or I'm going to do the poplars and something in rows in France. And I go to these places and I have, I get really upset because they're looking at productive uh, combinations of trees and cropping and trees and sheep that can go on the best land 
we've got 10 or 20% of the landscape that needs trees anyway. Let's work with the farmers on making that work before we start moving into the, the more stable country in some fashion. And that is low hanging fruit is your shelter belts 5% of the landscape, your watercourses 7% of the landscape, depending on how the ge geomorphology of, the, of it. And then you've got your biodiverse corridors and stuff. And people are really comfortable with that. In our landscape, we had a, uh, I went to visit a woman a blackwood tree had fallen down on her property and we looked at it and decided it wasn't worth milling. Then we were walking back to the car and she's a fifth generation local farmer and she says to me quite frankly, when you came here I was worried. I thought you were going to try and change us. And I just laughed because we both knew the landscape had changed but the people hadn't. All, you'd, all I'd done is introduce tree growing as a way to express what they wanted to do with their country anyway. And there's a great desire within the community and a great discomfort about what the farming landscape looks like now. But like uh, Charles said, they just need to be introduced ways to really do what they want to do, which is probably leave a better landscape to their children. And I'm sure trees are going to be part of that. Certainly the trees that we look after and manage and pass on as, as high value timber potentially to the next community. That will do. Thank you very much for coming. Of course, if you want to talk timber, I can talk species. If you want to grab a book, please uh, come and see me. Thanks very much.